Welcome to Bayou City. We're glad that you're here. As, as you're sitting down, pull out a Bible or your phone and tell a person on your right and left, I'm really glad that you're here today. So today we begin the gospel according to Mark. Now, it's traditionally accepted that Mark is the very first gospel written. It is a synoptic gospel along with Matthew and Luke, which means that they were written in the same general sense, especially compared to John, which seems to be a gospel written from a different angle. Mark was also known as John Mark. He was a missionary friend of the Apostle Paul. He was actually someone who abandoned Paul in the middle of a a missionary journey, and he caused a split between Paul and Barnabas. Later on in his life, he did reconcile with Paul. He was a ministry friend of Peter. In fact, 1 Peter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to him as a son in the faith. Now, Mark does not sign his name anywhere in this gospel. So how do we know he is actually the one who wrote it? Well, we have a quote right after the turn of the first century from a bishop named Papias. And he said, Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things as Peter recalled from memory, though not in an ordered form of the things either said or done by the Lord. And this is how Mark starts his gospel. Verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the beginning he chooses Not the ministry of Jesus, but he starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now we're going to see in just a few minutes that John the Baptist was uh, someone that could easily be described as weird or odd. I had a friend named Samson and Samson reminded me a lot of John the Baptist. First of all, his name was Samson, which is awesome. If you ask Samson, Samson, what what are you all about? What's your thing? What's your deal? He would say, I am an end time missionary which just sounds like something John the Baptist would say. Samson used to carry a giant cross, like full-size cross on his back through the streets of our hometown. He had a bullhorn and it wasn't unusual to drive up to an intersection and see Samson preaching there. Now he was not a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy, but on more than one occasion, I pulled up to a stoplight and there was Samson preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus's love and grace on the street corner. I had a group of friends and occasionally on Friday nights we would go downtown where lots of people would congregate and we would try to have conversations about Jesus and Samson was gonna come one Friday night and I remember praying, God, please don't let Samson bring his cross. (laughs) Which is just a terrible thing for a future preacher to say, you know. I feel so bad about it, but please, please. You know, because we're already doing something weird. We're trying to talk to strangers about Jesus, which is just about the weirdest thing that you could possibly do. You roll in with a cross and a bullhorn. That is next level kind of stuff. And John the Baptist, he was next level. Even if you loved him and called him a friend, you would easily describe him as weird. And Mark starts his gospel, not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. You see in your listening guide, there are a few things that I want you to leave with today about John's ministry. First, the ministry of John the Baptist fulfills prophecy about Jesus and therefore validates Jesus's claim to be Messiah. 
Verse two, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Mark begins his gospel with this prophecy, which is saying to his readers, everything that follows in these pages is a fulfillment of God's plan from the beginning. Now this prophecy is actually a composite of three different verses that had been combined and paired together in the generations before John the Baptist. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, Malachi chapter three, verse one, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. So the prophecy was that before the Messiah would come, there would be a forerunner to prepare the way, to till the ground, to get everyone ready. And John was that forerunner, setting the stage for Jesus and affirming his claim as Messiah. Now the eight verses that we have in the gospel of Mark about John the Baptist are just a window into his life. The other gospels help fill in some of the the gaps. So here's a few things that we know about John the Baptist. First, we know that his birth was miraculous. An angel appeared to his father, Zechariah, and said, your prayer has been heard, and you and your wife will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. But Zechariah responded, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So he says, listen, this has been something that we've been praying for for quite some time, but we missed our window. We're too old. And yet John was born. His birth was miraculous. Number two, John was predicted, the predicted Elijah. Elijah was a hero in the history of Israel, a great prophet who actually never tasted death. He was taken straight to heaven in a chariot of fire. It was believed that Elijah, or at least the spirit of Elijah, would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. We also know that Jesus esteemed him above all men. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is risen no one greater than John the Baptist. We know that large crowds came to John. Mark chapter one, verse five. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. But those large crowds eventually left him to follow Jesus. John chapter three, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. We also know John was arrested and killed. He was a prophet. He was a truth teller. And he told the truth to Herod Antipas, who was a ruler of Israel at that time. And Herod was having an affair with his brother's wife and would eventually marry his brother's wife. And John said, it shouldn't be that way. And he was arrested and executed for it. And his life and his ministry fulfilled this Old Testament prophecy that Mark begins his gospel with, which validates Jesus's claim to be Messiah. The second thing I want you to write down, the ministry of John the Baptist challenges me to play my kingdom role, no matter the cost. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John's role in God's unfolding kingdom is to prepare the way for Jesus, to make the road to Jesus straight and clear. And he does this through a baptism of repentance and confession of sin. A few years ago, Amanda and I were in California and on our bucket list was to see whales in their natural environment. And so we jumped on a boat with about 30 other people and we went whale 
hunting, not like Texas hunting, but like California hunting, which is not touching. And, uh, <laughs> and all day long, you're looking for these uh, whales. And the way you know one is close is there's a sprout of water that comes up out of the middle of the ocean. And the boat drives over there and you're hoping for a breach. You're hoping just to see a little bit of that whale come out. It sounds actually boring when you say it out loud, but it is in fact cred- incredibly uh, thrilling. And so we do this for most of the day. And by the time you're finished, uh, looking for these whales, you're pretty far away from the marina and, and it's about a 30 minute boat ride back in. And so the boat turns around and the day is over. And within just a, a few minutes, everyone on the boat is asleep besides the captain. Because if you've ever been on a boat, you know that's what happens. When the exciting part is over and it's just the boat ride, uh, you just get sleepy all of a sudden. Somehow the rhythm of the waves and the boat cutting through the waves just puts you to sleep. The same thing happens when you ride on an airplane. And that's what happened, has happened to the people of Israel. It's what happens to us. Those consistent rhythms of life just lull us to sleep. They should have been eagerly anticipating the Messiah. They should have been praying and readying themselves for it. But they had fallen asleep. And John was their wake-up call. He was their alarm. And he has a baptism of readiness. So if you are being baptized in the Jordan River by John, what you are declaring in faith is that you are ready for the Messiah. You are alert. You have eyes to see and ears to hear when the Messiah arrives. So John is the wake-up call, the alarm. And the wake-up call can't look and sound like the rest of the noise. It needs to be obvious. It needs to be loud. It needs to be startling. And John was. Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. There was a rawness to him. This is a wild man in the wilderness calling people to wake up. And the camel-haired garment and the raw leather belt and his wilderness diet added to his effectiveness. Now God is not asking everyone to take up John the Baptist's way of living. God can use those who have resources to turn up the volume on their message. God uses everyone. He uses the rich. He uses the poor. He uses those who have a lot. He uses those who have a little. But whether you have a lot or a little today, all of us need to consider the question, is my way of living amplifying my message or suppressing it? Because your resources will either be opportunities for you to glorify Jesus, or there'll be obstacles for you in glorifying Jesus. Our resources can become obstacles by becoming a distraction. That's why we love having resources. That's why we love money. That's why we love ability, because it opens doors for us. But so many of us are busy walking through those open doors that we don't have time for our kingdom role. I mean, think about even the way a lot of people decide whether or not they're going to come to church. They look around and say, do I have an open door anywhere else in my life? It's Friday afternoon. I'm pursuing all of my options. Should we go to Austin? Should we go to San Antonio? Should we drive to El Paso? Why would you drive to El Paso? I don't know, because we can't. Should I go up and see somebody in Dallas? Should I do this? Should I go to the lake? Should I do this? We look around and we say, are there any options for me? Are there open doors for me? And if there are no open doors to walk through and we happen to be in Houston on Sunday morning, and then we might actually consider coming to church. So it's easy to see how our ability to have doors open for us because of our resources, because of our money or ability could become a distraction for us. 
So many of us are taking advantage, so much advantage of our life. We have no time for the role that God actually created us to do. Our resources can make us spiritually dull. About three years ago, I took Jackson camping because that seemed like a good idea at the time. And uh, we drove down to Brazos Bend State Park and set up a tent in the early Friday evening. You know, the only reason men go camping is so they can have a fire. That's why you don't camp in the summer because you don't need a fire. But you go when it starts to be cool so you can build a fire so you can play with it. That's what men want to do. Men want to play in fire. And so that's what we did. We got food out of the car so we could burn it, so we could put it in the fire and eat it. And, and then we started looking around for sticks and trash and cans and acorns, whatever was around, we threw in the fire and, and we did that all night long. And then the worst part of camping happens after that, which is when somebody says, well, I guess we should get in the tent and try to go to sleep. Because if you've ever been camping, you know that sleep is impossible. It's always colder than it needs to be or hotter than it needs to be. You either have too many blankets or not enough blankets. You end up sleeping on the ground. You say, well, I would bring an air mattress. But somehow magically when you're camping, that air mattress loses its air in the middle of the night so that you're sleeping on the ground. You can't get comfortable. You're sleeping in a strange space, probably with somebody that you haven't shared space with a lot. And you're in the middle of this campground, which campground, all a campground is, is just a bunch of people awake at 3 a.m. <laughs> because you can't sleep in that environment because you're not comfortable. In order to be sleep, you need to be comfortable. And that's why we love resources. That's why we love money. That's why we love ability. That's why we love authority. Because we can make our life as comfortable as possible, which is a positive thing. The potential negative coming out of that positive thing is that we would be so comfortable that we would fall spiritually asleep. Our resources can make us spiritually dull. They can also be eternally dangerous. You remember Jesus' warning, Mark chapter 10, verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Our resources can also become an obstacle when we become dependent on them. Our resources are gifts from God. And so today, if you have a lot, you shouldn't feel bad about that. You should feel thankful for that. If you have a lot of ability today, if you have resources today, you should thank God for that. Those are good gifts that he's given to you. The challenge is, though, that we can see those gifts. We can put our hands on them. We can see their impact in our lives. God, we cannot. He's invisible. So we can see the gifts, but we can't see the giver. So what happens after time, there can be this subtle shift from faith that used to be in the giver to now our, just our faith belongs to the gifts. And we begin using those gifts in the way the giver never intended us to. So we have to ask ourselves today, again, whether you have a lot or you have a little, is my way of living amplifying my message and if not, then maybe we need a little bit more honey and locust in our diet. You remember when Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, came into the Babylonian kingdom to work for King Nebuchadnezzar? They were provided juicy steaks, rich food, and lots of wine. But you remember what they did. They actually rejected those things and said, we'll actually stick with vegetables and water. And within just a few days, they had already surpassed their competitors, and they had been promoted in a way their competitors had not. See, our human nature craves increase. 
Increase in money, increase in fame, increase in power, increase in influence, increase in beauty, respect, responsibility, promotion. We want increase at work. We want increase at home. We want increase among friends. We even want increase among strangers. But the word of God shows us that sometimes advancement comes when we say no to ourselves instead of saying yes to ourselves. John the Baptist is not John the Baptist if he has a more balanced diet and a diverse closet. Daniel and those three friends, they don't get promoted if they eat those juicy steaks and drink lots of wine. David doesn't beat Goliath if he takes the honor of wearing King Saul's armor into battle against the giant. But instead he chooses just a sling and a few stones. Just because we can say yes to ourselves doesn't mean we always should. Some of us have had our message suppressed by too many yeses. And the third thing I want you to write down, the ministry of John the Baptist helps me see Jesus clearly and participate in the full benefits of the Holy Spirit. Verse seven, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So it says that he's preaching, which means to be a herald or in general to proclaim. Now, when I think of the word herald, I think about one of those uh, little newsboys from the end of the late 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s where they would stand on the corner with their newspaper saying, uh, you know, hey, 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 read all about it, read all about it. That's heralding, it's bringing attention. And John is preaching, he's heralding, he's proclaiming. And what is he proclaiming? What's his message? I'm not the one. It's not me. Now look at the two things he brings out about Jesus in comparison to himself. Verse seven, after me comes he who is mightier than I, And second, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now John is using a word picture here of a household servant and the master of a house. There may be even some foot washing implications in what he's saying. Now, if we follow John's example here, it will be offensive to our self-centered sensibilities. It is a affront to our human nature to say that our primary message is not about ourselves, but about someone else. That we would live to bring attention to ourselves only to pass that attention on to someone else goes against everything that's in us. And yet this is the best possible use of your life. To spend your days as a compelling conduit for people to find Jesus. Because John brought in the crowds. He was compelling. Verse five, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. But his message was, I'm not the one. And this is our mandate. Our mandate is to bring people in only to pass them on, on to Jesus. You should live a compelling life by your kindness, by your creativity, by your boldness, by your consistency, your authenticity, your compassion. Your life should make people want to come in for a closer look. But when they come in for a closer look, what do they hear you say? They hear you saying, I'm not the one. Jesus is the one. So when you get that diagnosis, 
that all of us are bound to get at one point in our life or another. When you get the diagnosis and people are going to see you blessing God instead of cursing God, they're going to want to come in for a closer look. And what are they going to hear you say? It's not me. It's Jesus. When they see your marriage, the way you've ordered it, that even though you've got your stuff, just like everybody else has their stuff, at the end of the day, you turn back towards one another and not away from one another. People are gonna wanna come in for a closer look and what are they gonna hear you say? Hey, it's not us, it's Jesus. When they see you thriving in your singleness, not just enduring it, not just putting up with it, but they see you thriving and flourishing, they're gonna wanna come in for a closer look. What are they going to hear you say? It's not me. It's Jesus. When they see us raising children who love families, who aren't rebellious, who still love the church, they're going to come in for a closer look. And what are they going to hear us say? Hey, trust me, it's not me. It's Jesus. Then he says in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word baptize means to immerse. John was plunging them all the way into the Jordan River. And he says, Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna plunge you all the way into the spirit of God. I want you to notice this is something that Jesus does. Jesus is the one that baptizes with the spirit. It's not something the spirit does and it's not something we do. And when we try to understand the things of the spirit, there's a significant amount of mystery. You remember when Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about new birth in John chapter three, he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. It can be hard to quantify the working of the wind and it can be hard to quantify the working of the spirit, but we are drawn to formulas. We're drawn to formulas, but we must beware of making math out of mysteries. So if someone comes to you and says, I know everything there is to know about the spirit, you just need to do this, 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 and this, and here is a formula, beware. That person is either arrogant or ignorant because you can't make math out of mysteries. Now, what we can be confident of, though, is that Jesus wants us to be immersed, to have the full immersive experience of the Spirit of God. Now, if I took a survey this morning, uh, show of hands, and this is rhetorical for any of you who are half listening. If I took a survey and said, how many of us feel like we live plunged beneath the Spirit, that we are having the full and total immersive experience that Jesus had in mind? John told us about. I, I would guess that we would get just, a, just very few hands. Most of us don't feel like that's the life we're living. But thankfully, God has not placed our feelings in charge of what is true about our connection with the Spirit. And here's the things that we can know from the Scripture about you and the Holy Spirit. First, He guides you into truth. He reminds you of Jesus' teaching. He helps you to pray. He gives you good character. He causes you to bound in hope. He seals you in Christ. He washes and renews you. He applies the justification that Jesus purchased for you to you. He guarantees that you have a future with Christ. He brings about that new birth that Jesus provided for us. He causes us to relate as 
relate to God as Father. He transforms us from glory to glory. He makes us competent ministers of the gospel. He provides and empowers our spiritual gifts. He gives joy even in the midst of suffering. He sets us free from the law of sin and death. He reveals the mystery of the gospel. He strengthens us with the power of God. These are all things that are true about you and true about the Spirit. Now, if you would say, you know, if you did take that survey, I, I really would like to be somebody who could lift my hand and say, I am having the experience that Jesus had in mind that John told us about. Here's what I would suggest that you do. I suggest that you take this list and you put it to memory. You put it to memory. And then daily you begin to rehearse these true things about you and the spirit to yourself. And what will happen is that truth will travel from memory of mind to memory of heart. And when it gets into your heart, you start practicing it. When these truths get into your heart, you start praying them. And I promise if you will do that, you will not miss the wind of the spirit as it blows by. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist played a very important role. He was the wake up call to Israel, a wild man in the wilderness, baptizing people, making the road straight that led to Jesus. God used him greatly. But Jesus follows it up with these words. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If you and I, if we will take our place in the kingdom of God, God will use us greatly too by the power of the spirit to make a straight path for Jesus to meet the people that we love and care about. Let's pray. The spirit of prayer, would you take a second, just ask God, is there any specific way that you want me to apply what we've read today? Of all the things I've heard, is there a priority for me as I leave? By the power of your spirit, help us to obey and follow through. In Jesus' name.